0: Hello and welcome to What Could Be Better Than a Home, the podcast of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust. You are listening to our very first episode, Volume 1, What is a Community Land Trust? Chapter 1, Is Norway the world's largest community land trust? The two missions of Milwaukee Community Land Trust are to help create a city with affordable housing for all, and to educate people about housing issues. Today, we'll be looking at the housing system of Norway, which bears some striking similarities to a community land trust. With that knowledge, we'll take a closer look at community land trusts in our next episode. I'm very excited to be talking about the housing system of Norway because it is very unique and unusual and makes for a very interesting topic. One aspect of Norway's housing system jumps out immediately, and that's the high level of home ownership. At 83%, Norway has one of the highest rates of home ownership in the entire world, Lithuania, Singapore, Romania, and Mauritius all have home ownership rates above 90%. So, Norway's home ownership rate is not the highest in the world, but it's higher than nearly every other country and far higher than the United States home ownership rate, which currently stands at 64%. However, the home ownership rate isn't the best way to consider access to home ownership, and it really only tells a part of the story. Why is that? Well, home ownership isn't right for everyone. Think of it like this home ownership is only right for people who expect to stay in the same place for an extended period of time. If you expect to have to move to a new city in the near future, you're better off renting. The transaction costs of the home buying process are so high that you would actually lose money buying a home if you have to move within a few years. And frequently, young adults are not in a situation where home ownership makes sense. Maybe they're students who are only living in a college town until they graduate. Maybe they're in an entry-level job and might have to move to a new city in order to get a more suitable long-term career. Or maybe they just haven't figured out their calling in life quite yet. For the most part, young adults are much better off renting. So perhaps we don't want young adults to be homeowners, at least not yet. And that's the better way to approach this question of homeownership. What we need to be most interested in is not the raw percentage of homeowners. Rather, the better question to ask is, what percentage of people will eventually become homeowners during their adult life? By this measure, 95% of Norwegians will become homeowners as adults. That means that nearly all of those transient young adults will eventually have the opportunity to become a homeowner, and most will take advantage of the opportunity. So, how did they do it? How did Norway get such a high home ownership rate? And more importantly, what can we learn from Norway's housing system? What could be better than a home? A place you own, a place you call your own? Or can we create a type of housing that's even better? Stay tuned. Part one, a worldwide housing crisis. Norway's very unique housing system got started after World War II. Like most countries in the developed world, the end of World War II brought a very serious two-fold housing crisis. First, there simply wasn't enough housing to go around. And second, housing wasn't affordable. So countries around the world struggled to find a way to build more housing and make sure that people could afford a place to live. Around the world, some dramatically different strategies were attempted. To really understand what makes the Norwegian system so special, you have to understand how other housing systems were designed and see how the Norwegian experience differed. So let's first take a look at the American solution to the post-war housing crisis and then the typical European solution which relied on social housing. The American solution to the post-war housing crisis was to facilitate the construction of single-family homes in newly minted suburbs surrounding major urban centers. The federal government made the suburbs possible by subsidizing most steps of the housing system, from transportation, building highways, to financing. Billions of dollars were poured into the creation of suburbs. Meanwhile, most European countries focused on subsidizing the construction of social housing. The American system has a lot of for-profit interests. Most lenders are for-profit, and yes, Individual homeowners can profit from selling their home if housing prices rise. The idea behind European social housing is to take the profit motive out of housing. European social housing took many different forms, but there are some general principles common to all social housing programs. First, social housing is always non-profit. Frequently, as in the United Kingdom and Sweden, social housing is public. That is, housing is owned by the municipal government. In other places, such as West Germany, social housing was owned and operated by nonprofit corporations devoted to the public benefit. In places such as Austria and the Netherlands, it was a mix of both. A second key commonality is that social housing is always rental housing. People living in social housing do not own their housing, they rent their housing for a subsidized price. Whereas the American solution to the post-war housing crisis subsidized transportation and financing for the construction of single-family, owner-occupied housing, most European countries instead subsidized the construction of multi-unit social housing and subsequently subsidized the rents of social housing tenants. It's no exaggeration to say that the post-war housing crisis offered countries the opportunity to fundamentally remake their housing systems. Here, the United States is a particularly dramatic example. Prior to the post-war housing crisis, the United States had no suburbs, at least no suburbs as we would recognize them today. Afterwards, we had suburbs, as well as interstate highways, supermarkets, and other key features supporting suburbs. So the post-war housing crisis was a serious problem, but it was also an opportunity, the opportunity to fundamentally remake the housing system. At the time, Norway's housing system was dominated by landlords, who charged very high rents and frequently ignored tenants' requests for routine repairs and maintenance. This system was soon to be dramatically changed. The most popular political party in post war Norway was the Social Democrats, and they had very different ideas about housing. As the Social Democrats dominated in election after election in Norway, their ideas became the driving force behind Norway's housing system. It is this unique approach that created Norway's very special housing system. Obviously, housing is a basic human need. The Social Democrats believed that nobody should be able to profit off a basic human need. Nobody should be able to profit off housing. As they saw it, landlords had too strong a bargaining position. It was too easy to take advantage of people. A landlord in need of tenants could forego a few days rent if his apartment went without a tenant. If a landlord wasn't happy with what applicants were willing to pay, he could simply not rent the apartment until he got a better offer. But a family in need of housing could not forego a few days of housing. A family couldn't sleep outside in the frigid Norwegian winters or have all their worldly possessions ruined by the weather or stolen. Even a day without housing would be a catastrophe for a family. In some landlords had a much stronger bargaining position, and this made it very easy for them to take advantage of people. Whereas countries building social housing strove to create an alternative to private for-profit rental housing, the Social Democrats wanted to eliminate landlords completely. Part two, the Norwegian strategy to replace landlords. As we saw in part one, developed countries around the world all faced a housing crisis. And this crisis demanded creative solutions. For Norway's housing crisis, the Social Democrats identified landlords as public enemy number one and developed a 2 pronged approach to put all Norwegian landlords out of business. Let's take a closer look at their plan. First, the Social Democrats instituted rent controls. That is, they set a maximum price a landlord could charge to rent his apartments. This made it much more difficult for landlords to take advantage of people. No matter how desperate a family was for an apartment, The highest price the landlord could charge was stipulated by the rent control law. Rent controls, not desperation, would set housing prices. Before moving on, it's important to note that rent controls are not at all unusual in the developed world. Rent controls are rare in the United States and actually illegal in 35 states. However, many countries in the developed world use rent controls. Obviously, rent controls cut into landlords' profits. For a dramatic example outside of norway we can turn to the netherlands in 1947 54 percent of all housing stock was owned by private for-profit landlords but by 1993 just six percent of all housing stock was owned by private for-profit landlords rent controls competition from social housing and other factors contributed to the decline of private rental stock it just wasn't profitable to be a landlord So most for-profit landlords sold their real estate and got out of the business. In the Netherlands, the precipitous decline of private landlords was considered a side effect of Article 22 of the Dutch Constitution, which guarantees affordable housing to all citizens. But the Norwegian Social Democrats were different. They saw landlords as enemies who needed to be defeated. And the use of rent controls to cut into landlord profits was a key strategy in their fight against Norway's landlords. So the Social Democrats had a plan to eliminate the current housing system at the roots. But what would replace it? While most of their European neighbors were building social housing, Norway took a very different approach. Remember, social housing means subsidized rental housing, owned by a non-profit, public, or private entity. But the Social Democrats didn't like this idea at all. If landlords were taking advantage of people, charging them high prices for decrepit homes that they refused to do routine maintenance on, was the problem that the landlord was for-profit, or was the problem that people didn't have control over their own housing? In other words, was the problem that landlords were greedy and too powerful, or was the problem that there were landlords at all? To the Social Democrats, having non-profit landlords just wasn't good enough. While perhaps an improvement over for-profit landlords, the Social Democrats didn't want people's homes to be out of their control. Would a local government bureaucrat or nonprofit housing corporation really care as much about the housing as the people living in it? Sure, social housing projects throughout Europe, both public and private, did afford residents a great deal of power in managing their homes. But the Social Democrats didn't think this went far enough. No, the Social Democrats believed that the people who could most be trusted to care for their housing were the people living in it. And that could only be guaranteed if the people living in the homes were the home's owners. As long as a municipal government or non-profit corporation owned the building, even if they willingly ceded management or other rights to the tenants, the residents could never be fully in charge of their own housing. To the Social Democrats, a housing system based on home ownership was the only just solution to their housing crisis. Indeed, in all areas of Norwegian's well-being, the Social Democrats saw home ownership as a part of the solution. Take retirement. Retirement pensions are extremely expensive. In the United States, Social Security only covers about one-third of the wages each retiree made while working. Yet despite the low level of benefits, the program is extremely expensive, accounting for nearly a quarter of the entire federal budget. To be clear, there's almost no waste in Social Security. For Social Security retirement, administrative costs are just one half of 1% of program expenditures. It's simply very, very expensive to make sure that our elders do not live in poverty once they are no longer able to work. Faced with these same cost structures, the Social Democrats saw an ingenious opportunity for tremendous savings by facilitating home ownership. How so? Well, imagine a young couple. They get married, go to work, and apply for a mortgage to buy a home. They work hard at their jobs their entire adult life, dutifully paying their mortgage payment each month. Decades later, just about the time they're ready to retire, their mortgage would be paid in full. Thus, just as people would be needing a retirement pension, their cost of living would fall dramatically as they no longer needed to make mortgage payments. Homeownership was thus a crucial way to guarantee retirement security. A secure retirement is far less expensive if retirees have almost no housing costs versus a system where retirees owe the same amount of rent each month as they owed during their prime working years. Clearly, a great deal of thought went into the Norwegian housing system, including how it would be integrated into the larger social welfare state. There were many advantages of high homeownership rates, even outside the housing system. Part three, creating a nation of homeowners. As we saw in part two, the Social Democrats believed that home ownership was the solution to their housing crisis. So how did they create a nation of homeowners? Let's take a closer look. Obviously, housing is extremely expensive. Even a very modest home costs several times a typical household's annual income. Only the very richest can purchase homes without borrowing money. So the Social Democrats created two public banks to extend mortgages to as many households as possible. In the United States, home loans were, and continue to be, indirectly subsidized by the federal government through the secondary mortgage market. How exactly this works is too complicated to be covered here. We'll have to save this for a later episode. But historically, in the United States, the federal government normally owns approximately half of all mortgage debt. And elsewhere in Europe, construction costs were subsidized for public and private social housing. In Norway, rather than subsidizing home loans indirectly, as in the United States, and rather than subsidizing construction the Social Democrats subsidized mortgage interest rates. The public banks were generously subsidized so they could charge very low interest rates, or the money you pay to the bank in exchange for the bank lending you the money to buy your home. When interest rates are kept low, you owe the bank less money each month, and your housing is thus more affordable. To maximize the home ownership rate, the public banks did not require a down payment to apply for a mortgage. Lenders normally require a down payment because it makes the mortgages safer. There's less of a chance that the borrower won't be able to pay it back. But by requiring a down payment, young adults who are otherwise ready for homeownership can't apply. They simply haven't had enough time to save up for a down payment. By not requiring any down payment, public mortgages were not as safe, but more people were able to become homeowners. To be clear, home loans with very low fixed interest rates are extremely safe. But they are a little bit safer if the borrower is required to contribute a down payment. However, the Social Democrats' goal was to create as many homeowners as possible. If this meant the public banks had to accept a few defaults here and there, so be it. Finally, for very disadvantaged Norwegians whose incomes were so low that they could not get a mortgage from the public banks, the Social Democrats offered cash down payment assistance programs so practically anyone could become a homeowner. Norway's system of public banks extending subsidized mortgages to aspiring homeowners is pretty straightforward for the construction of new single-family homes, as well as for people buying existing single-family homes. But that leaves out multi-unit apartment buildings. The Social Democrats wanted these buildings to be owned by residents as well. Similarly, it wasn't practical to build single-family homes in crowded urban areas. Norway needed more multi-family buildings, but the Social Democrats wanted these buildings to be resident-owned as well. How could this be accomplished? It turns out that that's no problem. The Social Democrats allowed households to apply for mortgages individually, but then pool those mortgages to finance a multi-unit building. Imagine that you and your five best friends live in an apartment building that your landlord wants to sell. You all go to a lender and apply for a $100,000 mortgage. The six of you use your mortgages, $600,000 in total, to buy your apartment building from your landlord. Or, if your landlord didn't want to sell after all, the six of you could use that $600,000 to pay for the construction of a new multi-unit building. This type of housing, where the residents of a multi-unit building own their individual unit and collectively own the building, is called a housing cooperative. Housing cooperatives are extremely rare in the United States because the federal government doesn't subsidize mortgages that are pooled in this way in the united states we never prioritized cooperative housing if we had the federal government would offer subsidies for mortgages used for cooperative conversions like this and housing cooperatives would be a very common form of tenure in the united states just like it is in norway it's not that we couldn't subsidize housing cooperatives it's that we chose not to There are a handful of places, Washington DC is a prime example, that have public programs in place to encourage cooperative conversions. But in general, housing cooperatives are uncommon in the United States because they were never subsidized in the way that single family homes were, and continue to be. It's important to see this new system of housing from the perspective of the old one. How did the transition from the old system to the new system occur? Imagine you are a landlord with several rental housing units. You're making good profits, but suddenly the Social Democrats create a new rent control law. Now, you have a maximum rent you can charge your tenants, and it's so low that it's eating into your profits. In fact, your business as landlord has become so unprofitable that you'd like to leave the market altogether. It's just not worth it for you to be a landlord. The only problem is that nobody wants to buy your building. If you can't run a profit because of the rent control law nobody else can either so you can't exit the market because there is nobody to sell to nobody that is except the tenants living in the buildings you own since it is so easy for each of your tenants to get a mortgage they are happy to buy all of your buildings from you for a fair price and you are more than happy to sell thus the transition from a renter to a home ownership based housing system Ran very smoothly. Part 4 Affordable Housing for Everyone, Forever. So the Social Democrats had a plan to create a nation of homeowners. But whatever the strengths of the Norwegian model, there is one very serious drawback. In social housing, rents are subsidized. When one resident moves out of a unit of social housing, the next person to move in gets that same subsidy. The housing is affordable no matter how many people move in and out of it. But that doesn't happen with home ownership. When someone moves out of a home they own, they sell it. But what if the market rate for that house is no longer affordable? If that's the case, then the first resident will have benefited from affordable housing, but everyone who subsequently moves into that home will not. Whereas social housing is affordable forever, owner-occupied housing is not. It's only affordable until housing prices rise. So how did the Social Democrats fix this last problem? The problem of maintaining affordability for the long term. They did so through price controls. As a condition for getting a subsidized public mortgage, Norwegian families had to agree that they could only sell their home for an affordable price. But since nearly everyone purchased their home with a mortgage from one of norway's public banks this meant that nearly all housing stock could only be sold for affordable prices remember the social democrats believed that nobody should be allowed to profit off of housing this included landlords but it also included ordinary people they believed that ordinary people should not be able to sell their homes at a profit especially since their profits would come at the expense of the family buying the house No, the Social Democrats believed that all Norwegians should have access to affordable housing, even the Norwegians who haven't yet been born. Price controls allowed the magnificent affordable housing system they developed to last forever. Part 5. Conclusion Let's take a step back and look at the big picture. How did Norway get such a high home ownership rate? Remember, 95% of Norwegians will become homeowners as adults, meaning nearly every Norwegian can aspire to homeownership. Homeownership is far more common in Norway than the United States. Like the rest of the developed world, Norway faced a severe housing shortage following World War II, and housing affordability was always a serious issue. The Social Democrats believed that nobody should be able to profit off a basic human need like housing. And this led them to the conclusion that landlords needed to be put out of business. But they didn't believe it was good enough to replace for-profit landlords with non-profit ones. No, people needed to be owners in order to be completely in control of their housing. So, they created rent controls to create affordable housing in the short term and put landlords out of business in the long term. To replace a system based on for-profit rental housing, the Social Democrats created two public banks whose primary responsibility was to extend as many home loans as possible. Interest rates were subsidized so that mortgages were affordable, and for very disadvantaged Norwegians, the government offered cash down payment assistance. Almost everyone could afford to become a homeowner, and both single-family homes and multi-unit buildings could be owned by residents the latter in the form of a housing cooperative. Housing cooperatives are very common in Norway because they, as well as single-family homes, are subsidized by the federal government. However, housing cooperatives are not subsidized like single-family homes in the United States, so American housing cooperatives are very rare. In Norway, the transition from the old system to the new system was smooth because as landlords were looking to exit the market, their current tenants became eager buyers. And finally, home sales had price controls. A typical Norwegian could only sell her home for about the same price she bought it for. These price controls were created to ensure affordable housing for all Norwegians, forever. At a glance, one might assume that Norway achieves a higher home ownership rate than the United States because the Norwegian federal government subsidizes home ownership opportunities. After all, so many of Norway's home loans come from Norway's public banks. But that's really not true. The United States and Norway both heavily subsidize home ownership. The key difference is that the United States does so indirectly through the secondary mortgage market, which is invisible to a typical homeowner. Although we have dramatically different home ownership rates, it's not because the Norwegian government subsidizes home ownership and the American government does not. It's because we subsidize housing differently. Norway's unique housing system worked really, really well. Nearly everyone could afford to become a homeowner, and Norway had one of the most affordable housing systems in the entire world. But it didn't last. By the 1980s, both rent controls and price controls had been phased out. Since then, home prices have increased dramatically. However, even though several major pillars of the Social Democrats' housing system have been replaced, the legacy of their achievements remains, and Norway still has one of the highest home ownership rates in the entire world. How can Norway's home ownership rate remain so high despite rising prices? Well, by the time the regulations were phased out, nearly all Norwegian households were homeowners. And because home ownership is such an efficient vehicle to pass wealth along to the next generation, nearly all Norwegians still have the financial means to become homeowners by leveraging their parents' or grandparents' housing wealth. Today, a full third of Norwegian adults receive financial assistance from their families to buy a home. They might inherit housing wealth, or use their parents' home as collateral for their own home loan. That Norway's homeownership rate remains so high is testament to how important home ownership is for creating wealth that can be passed on to the next generation. Nonetheless, housing prices have steadily increased since the repeal of price controls, and homeownership is no longer as affordable or as accessible as it once was. Younger Norwegian homeowners have far higher levels of housing debt than their parents ever did. And this was not the case before. There is a small but growing segment of disadvantaged Norwegians for whom home ownership will never be a possibility. So returning to the question posed by the title of this episode, is Norway the world's largest community land trust? Norway's housing system bears some striking similarities to the community land trust model. We'll take a closer look at the community land trust model in the next episode, and use that knowledge to come up with an answer. After all, home ownership is part of the American dream. Most Americans aspire to home ownership. It's an indication of success, prosperity, and being a good citizen. You love your city and neighborhood so much that you buy a home willing to stay there forever, betting on your neighborhood's success. If the Norwegian model is so good at promoting home ownership, then maybe it's time to take some of the strongest parts of the Norwegian model and start using them here. See you all next episode. What Could Be Better Than a Home is a production of Milwaukee Community Land Trust LTD in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Research was done by me, Chris Kirko, and our producer is Dan Black. This podcast is brand new. If you've got suggestions or want to help out with volume two and beyond, send an inquiry to info at milwaukee dot org.